All right, all right, all right. Here we go. If you have your Bibles, it's going to be harder to follow along today. So I've got it all on the challenge acceptance. So they'll all be on the screen uh, for you. Now, I will say before I get started, last week I started talking about 90s country music, and I think I got more amens, and I got one preach that I've gotten since I've been here. So we're going to step up our talking game. You have permission, all right, to talk back to me, as long as it's positive, encouraging, Caleb, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> so I think I told you all a while back, once I get a, a step on my toes, preacher, I'm, I'm going to retire because I have arrived, all right? So that's what I really need in my life. We have been going through a series called Encountering the Messiah, zooming in on encounters with Jesus uh, with different people uh, so that we might behold him um, and really prepare our hearts uh, for Easter. Uh, uh, And so that's kind of what we've been doing over the past few weeks. I need somebody to bring me a bottle of water because, oh, Eden's got one. You stole it. I stole it from her is what she was saying. I hope. Thank you. Oh, children. So we're we're, uh, encountering the Messiah. We're zooming on these stories of Jesus. Last week we entered the Passion Week, which is the last week of Jesus' life. And today we continue in the Passion Week, uh, zooming in. And really we're going to look at one of the final encounters of Jesus' life before his death. Now, there are some famous trials in American history. Uh, I posted on Facebook this week and, and, and kind of asked you guys what were some of the most famous to you. And uh, some of the big winners were, this one was, this was just me, but uh, famous trial. John Adams' defense of the British soldiers accused of murder during the Boston Massacre of 1770. Uh, the Salem Witch Trials. The Scopes Monkey Trials over the teaching of evolution in schools. Brown versus the Board of Education. Roe versus Wayne. And the O.J. Simpson trial, and so many more. These trials have defined our society, and they have captured uh, the attention of Americans over the years. But no matter how famous these trials are, no matter how much they have changed our society or the world, they pale in comparison to the most famous, most consequential, and most ridiculous and unjust trial ever recorded in the history of the world, and that is the trial of Jesus of Nazareth. All four gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, record this trial of Jesus, or series of trials as we're going to see, but they all the different gospel accounts include differing details, not contradictory details, but emphasize and point out things that the other ones don't. And so I spent all week combining them, trying to look at the full picture of, of the trial that Jesus endured on his way to this unjust execution. And so this sermon is going to be a little bit different than normal in that uh, we're going to just try to just tell this story together, hear this story together, because honestly, I don't think most of us really fully kind of could retell it because it's pretty complicated because you got to look at all four accounts. But what I want to do is try to understand all that Jesus went through as he went on this trial before his crucifixion. 
Now, Jesus had been preaching and teaching uh, over the course of the last three years. He's been healing the sick. He's been performing miracles. Uh, and, and in that time of day, in, in this time back then, uh, there were some pretty extreme things uh, that Jesus said in this Jewish society. And the authorities did not like the things that Jesus had to say. One of the things you got to remember is that in this time, they are a theocracy. Meaning that uh, the religion of Judaism was the basis for the government, okay? And so you could be charged for believing or teaching things that in their estimation were unbiblical, according to the Old Testament. And as reports were coming out about uh, uh, Jesus, these religious leaders who uh, heard these things, that Jesus was claiming to be the Messiah, Jesus was claiming to be able to forgive sins, uh, that he was claiming to be the Son of Man prophesied in the Old Testament. He even said seven times in the Gospel of John that I am, I am the great I am, which which is God's name. And so, hearing all of these reports, the religious guys, the religious leaders, the authorities wanted to get rid of Jesus because they saw him as a false teacher, as a heretic, and as a blasphemer. And so they plotted to kill him. It was during the feast of the Passover, uh, one of the most holy days in Jerusalem and Judea, uh, in Judaism. Uh, and Jesus and his disciples had had the Passover together. And then they went to the Garden of Gethsemane, and Jesus was praying. In the middle of the night, he's been up for all day. Now he's been up all night. And under the cover of darkness as he's praying, Judas comes to Jesus and kisses him on the cheek, on the cheek, betraying him to those that he has sold him out to for 30 pieces of silver. And they go to arrest him. John 18 tells us that Jesus was put in shackles and then taken to stand his first trial before Annas. And that's the point, first blank. J- trial 1. Jesus is questioned by Annas in secret. Jesus is questioned by Annas in secret. Now, Annas was the old high priest who held, uh, which is one of the highest positions in Judaism, especially at this time when it served less of a religious function right now and served more of as a political function. Annas was not currently the high priest, but he had so much political power and political sway that they take, uh, they arrest Jesus and take him to this guy first because he's kind of like the big boss of, of, of Israel. So they go to this private meeting, and, he's, and Annas is going to question Jesus. In John chapter 18, verse 30, verse 19, uh, here's what happens. It says, the high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teachings. And Jesus answered him. I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. And when he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? And Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? And Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. So Annas, after giving him no legal representation, bringing him in in the middle of the night, asks him these self-incriminating questions, and then as Jesus says, listen, I've not done anything in secret. I've been teaching for three years, wide out in the open. You should have come and listened. You should go ask some people, but that's not good enough. And so he has his thug come punch him in the face. 
And then he sends him on to the current high priest so that he might stand official trial. In the middle of the night, trial two, Jesus stands before Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin for a religious trial. Jesus stands before Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin for a religious trial. I'm going to leave that up for a second because no one in this room knows how to spell Caiaphas, including me. It always had those little red squiggly lines under it. So we're going to read together Matthew 26. And here's what happens as Jesus goes before Caiaphas. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they, that they might put him to death. But they found none. Though many false witnesses came forward, at least two came forward and said, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said to him, You have said so. But I tell you, for now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power, And come in on the clouds of heaven. And then the high priest tore his robes and said, he has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? And they answered, he deserves death. And then they spit in his face and they struck him. And some slapped him saying, prophesy to us, you Christ. Who is it that struck you? When you read this passage It is quickly evident how gross it is and how wrong it is. First off, it's in the middle of the night. And it was against Jewish law and custom to hold trial in the middle of the night. But they don't care. These men are not concerned about the law. They're only concerned about laws that suit them. And so because of that, they bring in the middle of the night. They couldn't find anyone to really testify uh, 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 as a a witness to bring charges. And so they bring these false testimonies against him. They twist Jesus' words. And when, when asked to give a response, they give him no legal counsel, which was customary in the day. And Jesus remains silent. He doesn't defend himself. Remember that. We've got to come back to that. And, and getting mad, the high priest kind of yells at him. He gets frustrated. He says, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ. And Jesus only says, you have said so. And then Jesus tells him that this thing from the Old Testament, like from now on you're going to see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power in the clouds of heaven. This Old Testament picture of the Messiah coming in power. Jesus is saying, this moment that you've seen about, it's here. And the high priest cannot handle it. And so clutching his pearls, he rips his clothes off, hits his knees, and he, he calls for a guilty verdict. And the council bursts out into an uproar to kill Jesus. Now this went against all decorum. The Sanhedrin is this council. It's all these religious guys that come together and they make this sort of tribunal together. And they were supposed to vote individually. That was the, their rules. They couldn't convict anyone without voting individually, but instead this turns into a mob. that They began chanting death to him. People start standing up and coming up to Jesus, slapping him in the face, punching him in the face, mocking him, saying, well, if you're the Christ, prophesy, tell us who slapped you. As they're all hitting him, who hit you? Who hit you? This, this, this religious council has turned into a mob. At this point, this, this political body of Jews, they've set their mind on to put Jesus to death. But this entire political uh, uh, trial is a, is a political sh- sham. 
They've broke all their own rules. Six examples of rules they've broken really quickly. No trials were to be held during feast time, and it's Passover, but they did it anyway. Two, each member was supposed to vote individually uh, uh, to condemn anyone, but instead they just start shouting and they never actually vote. If the death penalty was given, a, a, a night must pass, a day has to pass before the sentence could be carried out, and as we're going to see, that amount of time doesn't take place. Uh, four, no trials were to be held at night, but they did it anyway. Five, they accu- the accused was supposed to be given legal representation, but Jesus had none. And six, the accused was not to be asked self-incriminating questions, but they asked him deliberately, are you the Christ? This is a kangaroo court from beginning to end. A sham, a perversion of justice. But though Jesus had been awake all the day before, and now in the middle of the night, his trial continues. Because the Jews had no legal authority to put anyone to death. They are under Roman authority and Roman rule, and so they have to take the trial before a Roman court. And so trial number three, Jesus stands trial before the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate. Jesus stands trial before the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate. These Jews are under Roman control. They're not a sovereign nation at this point in history. And so Rome has allowed them to have a a small little, little governance among themselves to kind of keep their people at bay. But they pay taxes to Rome. They belong to Rome. And so they can't kill Jesus themselves. They can't carry out capital punishment themselves. So they have to go to the Roman authorities to do so. And so they call up the governor. In the middle of the night, they go to the governor, wake up the governor, and they want to put Jesus to death. And he wants them to do it on their behalf. But one of the things that I want you to notice is the change-up of the charges. You see, in their court, in their religious courts, they find Jesus guilty of a theological crime. They find him guilty of blasphemy, of believing and teaching and claiming to be someone that he's not. He is claiming to be their Messiah, to be God themselves. But they tell Pilate something differently, probably because knowing Pilate would not care, this Roman governor would not care about their religious squabble. They instead accuse him of leading an insurrection. John 19 verse 12 says, uh, the the, the, uh, Jews say to Pilate, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king sets himself against Caesar. They make the religious accusations as well. They're chanting those. But they make sure to throw to Pilate that Jesus is a rebel against Rome. They appeal to something that Pilate would care about. He's a Roman dissenter. He thinks he is a king above Caesar and he's going to lead an insurrection against Rome and so you need to take him out. One of the things we see throughout this is that Pilate, actually even though this charge is levied against him, Pilate is actually trying to spare Jesus. Ultimately in the end, we see that Pilate has the power and the authority to spare Jesus. But in the end of the day, he lacks the spine, the conviction, and the will to do so, and he takes the coward's way out. But what I want us to see is that Pilate tries. He tries to save Jesus. He tries to dissuade the crowd from the death penalty. Now, we don't know his motives, and I don't want to attribute motive to Pilate of why he does this. It might be because his wife had some dreams about Jesus, And she comes to him and says, have nothing to do with this righteous man. Leave him alone. 
she seemingly knows at least something about him and who he is from this dream and tries to warn her husband. So maybe it is that. Maybe he just thinks he's innocent, it seems to be the case. But for whatever the reason, Pilate is trying to save Jesus. And the first way he tries to, done that, does, tries to do that, Pilate tries to save Jesus by proving his innocence. He tries to save Jesus by proving his innocence. Picture this scene with me. The mob has held their own little trial convicted him of blasphemy, and they have brought Jesus now shackled in the middle of the night before Pontius Pilate, the governor, and they are chanting and, and, and screaming out his accusations of what this man is guilty of. They're slapping him around. All four gospel accounts describe Pilate in the midst of this riot, bringing Jesus up next to him and bringing him aside to have a little side conversation with Jesus. Ignoring the crowd and, and talking to Jesus one-on-one. -on -one. And in that conversation, he's trying to, to figure out what's really going on. Because as he looks at Jesus as he's talking to him, he doesn't really see anything guilty about it. He doesn't see anything deserving death. And so he's trying to get either Jesus to recant these things or to bring some clarity to these things. Or to say something that he could use to tell the crowd to prove his innocence or at least you know, get death penalty off the table. In Mark chapter 12, verse 2, it says this, And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. And the chief priest accused him of many things, and Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you? But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate wondered. He's talking to him. He's trying to get, a, get something out of him, and Jesus doesn't say anything. And it makes Pilate begin to think, like, why would this man not give me anything? I'm trying to save him. Why would he not give me any ammunition to try to get him off the hook here? He had the opportunity to give a defense. He, he had the opportunity to say, I'm not leading a revolt. I'm not a Roman dissenter. I'm not a, a religious zealot. He, says, he could have come and said, man, dude, I've been healing the sick. I've been preaching about turning the other cheek and loving your enemies. I've even been preaching about paying taxes to Caesar. But Jesus doesn't say that. Throughout much of the conversation, Jesus just remains silent and gives no defense. And the only account of him we have of actually talking is in the Gospel of John. And here's what John counts Jesus, the only thing Jesus is saying, really. John 18, 33. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord? Or did others say it to me to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? And Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting, that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. And then Pilate said, so you are a king. And Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate said to him, what is truth? I love this exchange. Jesus is asked, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus' response is basically, do you perceive this to be true, that, that I'm the king of the Jews? Do you perceive that to, true, or to be true, or are you just repeating what you've heard? It's almost like, do, do, are, are you, do you actually know who I am, governor? Like, 
He's like, do you, do you actually see I am who I am, or, or are you just saying what they've said? Quickly, Pilate reveals that he doesn't care, right? He's not a Jew. He doesn't care about Jewish religion or their dealings. And he asks, bro, what have you done? Like, why are these, these guys so mad at you? What have you done? He's looking for some crime. Like, what have you done so bad that they want to kill you over it? And Jesus says, look, you're right, I am a king. But my kingdom is not of this world. If it was, my guys would be out here fighting right now. I'm a king who's come to preach the truth, and everyone who, who is of the truth listens to me. Pilate hears this, and I imagine him uh, to be like, okay, whatever, dude. <laughs> but he doesn't see a crime committed. And so Pilate then, listening to Jesus, goes back to the crowd, and he says, I find no crime with this man. Pilate, to, to this mob, he says, I find he hasn't done anything wrong. Nothing is particularly deserving of death. Pilate is trying to spare Jesus because he sees nothing wrong. And then the crowd began to accuse him all the more. And the only answer Jesus gives to Pilate is to Pilate and Pilate alone. Jesus never addresses the crowd, never defends himself to the crowd when the crowds accuse him. Even when Pilate says, look at how many things they accuse you of. But Jesus gives them no answer to any of the charges. Before the Jews, Jesus remained silent. He talks to the governor alone, but before the Jews, he doesn't, he doesn't ever defend himself. And Pilate says, I find no guilt in this man, but the crowd doesn't have it. Uh, the mob continues, the mob trial continues. Pilate wants nothing to do with this, it's obvious. He wants nothing to do with killing this man. And when he learns, somehow he learns that Jesus is a Galilean, he's from the, from the region of Galilee, he realizes that he has a way out. He sends him to Herod who is the Roman political propped up leader over the Jews. He sends him to Herod to get him, so he don't have to deal with it, let Herod deal with it. Trial number four. Herod questions Jesus, but Jesus remained silent. Herod questions Jesus, but Jesus remained silent. Herod is an evil man. Uh, one who not long from this very moment, God would is going to judge him and kill him for his wickedness. He receives Jesus and he hears the accusations and this man does not care about justice. This man does not care about much of anything. He had already cut off the head of John the Baptist because John had called him to repentance over his sin. But here's what happens in Luke 23. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad for he had long desired to see him because he had heard about him and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at some length, but he made no answer. And the chief priests and the scribes stood by vehemently accusing him. And Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then arraying him in gorgeous apparel, sent him back to Pilate. Herod gets Jesus. And he's just like giddy to be a part of the, a part of the show. He's like, oh, I've heard about this dude. I've heard stories about him. And all he really cares about, he's like, Jesus, do a trick for me. Right? He wants to see some sign. He's heard that Jesus has healed the sick and, and raised the dead and calmed storms. And he's like, hey, man, do something for me. Come on, do something. Do, do something. Show me your power. That's all he cares about. And so he, and Jesus just remains silent. So he begins to question him some, and Jesus just remains silent. He doesn't give Herod anything. And so you can imagine Herod being pretty frustrated. And so he just has his guys mock him, hit, hit, beat him around a little bit, treat him poorly. And then they put all these fine clothes on him, probably mocking him because he's heard the, the accusations. Oh, this is the king of the Jews. So they probably dress him up like a king and then mock him, right? Oh, the king of the Jews, right? And then he's done with him. 
and he sends him back to Pilate. Pilate thought he was rid of the situation, thought he was done, he could ship him off to Herod and it was over because he doesn't want to make a decision concerning the fate of Jesus. But now Pilate is looking at this mob, this mob that is about to tear the city apart, this riot that is about to begin, and he doesn't want to riot on his hands. But does he want to kill a man who he doesn't think has done anything wrong? Does he want to go against his wife's warning to not mess around with this righteous man? As Jesus falls back into Pilate's lap, he continues to try to save Jesus, not just by appealing to his innocence, but now this time, Pilate tries to save Jesus by providing a pardon. He tries to save Jesus by pardoning him. Ultimately by trying to offer him a substitute, uh, the, the mob a substitute. It was customary at the feast of the Passover that Pilate the governor would come out and release a prisoner to try to give some goodwill with the people. And so he brings out, he sees Jesus here and he's got Jesus before this mob and he brings out the worst criminal they have locked up. Not a guy he would normally have released. So he brings out this guy named Barabbas, thinking that this man who, actually, Barabbas, who actually did kill other people, who actually did lead a revolt against Rome, he thought this man was bad enough that the people, seeing between the two options, if they had to pick one to be set free, that they would choose Jesus and, and they would kind of be mad, but they'd get over it because we can't let Barabbas out because Barabbas is a bad dude. And if they let him out, he's just going to go kill other people and lead another revolt. And it's going to be bad for Rome. It's going to be bad for us. Matthew describes Pilate holding these two prisoners before the crowd. The notorious prisoner, it says, the word notorious prisoner, Barabbas, and Jesus who was called Christ. Which one shall I release? Matthew 27 says, now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the people. The chief priests and the elders, the religious guys, persuade the people to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, which of these two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. And Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with Jesus who was called Christ? And they all said, let him be crucified. Which of them do you want? Do you want the murderer or the, religion or, the, or the guy who you just don't like his religious teachings? Do you want the guy who's leading riots and, and, and insurrections? Or do you want the guy you've got some Bible interpretation problems with? And the leaders go around and they convince everyone and they say, Give us the murderer. Give us Barabbas. Oh, how foolish they are. To miss that before their very eyes stood their Messiah. The one long promise sent to save them. But they could not see. They were filled with rage, with religious zeal, and it blinded them. And it caused them to kill the very God that came to serve and save them. The other ironic thing here is that Barabbas' name. Think about this. Remember a couple weeks ago we talked about uh, uh, Peter? Peter bar Jonah. Peter, son of Jonah, bar means son of. Barabbas, literally, Bar, Abba, Bar, son of Abba, Bar, son of the Father. Here is Barabbas, that literally means son of the Father. And they have the son of the Father right before them. They have the divine son, the son of God, the son of the Father, right before them, and yet they don't know. 
and they give the pardon to the murderer Barabbas and, and they miss out on the very son of the father right before their eyes. They let the murderer go free. And I imagine Pilate shaking his head in disbelief over what has just happened and says, well, what do you want me to do with Jesus then? And they say, crucify him. They start chanting it. Crucify him. Crucify him. Crucify him. Some of the same people that just days ago laid palm branches at his feet and shouted, Hosanna in the highest. And they praised him. Now chant for his death. But Pilate has one more hope up his sleeve, one more attempt to preserve and save Jesus' life. Number three, or C, Pilate tries to save Jesus through lashing him. Now you think, how, how do you try to save Jesus through beating him into an inch of his life? Remember, crucifixion and all that led up to it was invented by the Persians, perfected by the Romans, and it was the most brutal form of torture you can imagine, and this is the first stage of it. And, and so it, the word that is used in the Bible is that Pilate had him scourged, a cat of nine tails whipping his back, pulling the flesh off his back until his ribs are exposed and his nerve endings are exposed with a whip full of glass and broken pottery and bone. That every time it hits him, it lodges into his flesh and then rips the flesh off and they do it again and again and again. So he, he tries to, to, to prove his innocence and it doesn't work. He tries to get this substitute, this pardon for him and it doesn't work. And he thinks, if I beat him, if I scourge him with a cat of nine tails to where he looks like a bloody pulp half alive, then maybe the crowd will look on him and have pity and go, okay, that's enough. He's probably learned his lesson. John 19 recounts this. Then Pilate took Jesus and scourged him. And the soldiers plaited a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. And they came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they struck him in their hand. And Pilate went out again and they said to him, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no crime in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate said, See, behold the man. And when the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him! Crucify him! And Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no crime in him. They beat the Messiah, their Messiah. They torture him, place a robe on him, clothe him in purple, mock him, hailing him as king of the Jews, laugh at him, beat him, and Pilate presents this broken Jesus, which any reasonable person would look at this bloody pulp of a broken man, flesh hanging off his body, blood everywhere, thinking that it would satisfy their bloodthirst. And yet when they see him, they are not moved to pity. They are moved for more blood, and they chant crucify him. Nothing short of his death would satisfy their thirst for blood. And Pilate is at a loss for words. He maintains, he says, guys, I don't see any crime in him. Matthew's gospel records that, that Pilate goes to a bowl and he washes his hands saying, you crucify him, I wash my hands of his blood. I'm innocent of his blood. But Pilate does not get off so clean as he is, as he is the one with the power, power to save his life and the power to crucify him. And he's captivated, uh, this, this mob of justice is, is cr- 
almost turn into a riot, one of the gospels says, and he's worried about that. But still, he doesn't give them over. Uh, he, he washes his hands and he doesn't give the order. But the Apostles' Creed, written in the third century, still blames him. It's the Apostles' Creed says, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and was buried. So Jesus was arrested by night, taken before Annas, guilty in this uh, backdoor trial, and then taken before Caiaphas in the Sanhedrin, guilty uh, uh, in this religious trial that breaks out into an uproar. Then he's taken before Pilate. Pilate pleads his innocence, but they won't hear it. He's taken before Herod. Herod doesn't really care. He just wants the show, doesn't get it, sends him back to Pilate. Pilate maintains that Jesus is still innocent, and he washes his hands over the mob. He tries to substitute him. He tries to beat him, but it's not enough. They cry, crucify him. And the last thing Pilate does is he writes a message on a piece of wood, and he put, has them put it on top of the cross. And the message and is in Hebrew, it is in Greek, and it is in Latin, and it says, King of the Jews. The Jewish religious leaders see this and they're mad and they say, hey, can you change your sign up for us a little bit? Can you write on there instead that he said he was king of the Jews? They wanted to be clear. He wasn't the king of the Jews. He just said that. And oh, the irony. Plain to see that he actually was. The Jews had killed their very own long-awaited Messiah. He was their king. And they had no idea that the truth was right in front of them and crucified their king they did. We look at all of these trials, all of these kangaroo courts, all these false testimonies, all the lies, the manipulation that it took to arrest Jesus. All this work in the middle of the night, throwing all decorum and laws and rules out of there. And all that it takes to arrest Jesus and accuse him, to falsely charge him, falsely condemn him, and to put him to death. And we ask, how could this happen? How could this be? How could God allow such a terrible thing to happen to his son? Why couldn't or why wouldn't God allow Pilate's efforts to save Jesus actually work? And the answer is why Pilate could not save Jesus is quite simple. Pilate couldn't save Jesus because Jesus was there to save us. In John's gospel, when Jesus and Pilate are off talking to themselves, Pilate is trying to prove his innocence and Jesus is remaining silent. Pilate says, don't you know? He says, don't you know I have the power to release you or the power to crucify you? And I love how Jesus responds in 1911 of John. He says, you would have no power over me unless it was given to you from above. Pilate says, I've got the power to crucify you or set you free. And Jesus says, you have no power given to you that I haven't given to you. You have no power because I am exactly where I want to be. You don't have me here. I have me here. Because it is for this very reason I have come. You cannot save me from this unjust death because you also cannot take my life. You remember his words, uh, Nathan read them earlier, where he says, No one takes my life, but I lay it down willingly. No one takes his life, he lays it down willingly. Jesus was in complete control. He was precisely where he wanted to be. Pilate could not save Jesus' life because he was there to save us. So now, now that we know the answer to why Jesus remained silent, why he did not defend himself, Jesus remained silent so that 
one day he could speak for you. Jesus remained silent so that they would put him to death so that one day soon he would not remain silent anymore so that he could speak on your behalf. He was silent so that they would kill him so that later he would be able to defend you. You see, every one of us will one day stand before God in a trial. And God alone as the final judge over our life, the final arbiter of whether or not we deserve heaven or deserve hell. And our problem is, no matter how good we think we have been, on that day when we stand before God our judge, we are all guilty as Barabbas. We all stand guilty as Barabbas. But when we look and trust in Christ, he will not remain silent anymore. No, when it comes to us, Jesus speaks up. When it comes to us, he speaks for us. When the great judge looks upon us and our guilt-ridden life, Jesus will not cry out, crucify him, crucify him. Instead, he will cry out, Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them, for I have died and I have been their substitute because they belong to me. Yeah! Jesus remained silent like a lamb led to the slaughter. He did not open his mouth. He did that so that they would kill him, so that his death would enable him to speak for us. You see, Jesus could have called this thing off at any moment. Jesus could have called down a multitude, a legion of angels to rescue him. He could have, with the thought, made them all drop dead, but he didn't. He stood there and he took it. He took the mockery. He took the humiliation and he took the shame. He took the shame. He took the guilt so that you could be spared the guilt and the shame and be seen as innocent. He was slain so that you could be spared because, as the scriptures say, by his wounds we are healed. You see, Jesus was condemned in the courtroom of man so that man might be acquitted in the courtroom of God. Jesus stood before this phony trial, this unjust trial, and was condemned in this courtroom of man so that when you and I stand in the courtroom of God, we might be acquitted Innocent, forgiven. There are many great ironies in this story. Many great ironies, but allow me to point out just two of them. When Jesus was on trial before Caiaphas, he said, Caiaphas, the high priest, says, Isn't it better that one man should die for the people? Caiaphas spoke greater than he knew. For it is exactly why Jesus was there. That he might die for the many. Isn't it better that one might die for the people? Yes, Caiaphas, it is. It is better that Jesus would take our sin and die for us that we might be spared. And then at the end of this story, when the people are crying, crucify him, crucify him. And Pilate says, I've got no fault in him. Do you know what the crowd say? Pilate says, this guy's not guilty. He's not done anything wrong. And the crowd say, let his blood be on us and our children. <laughs> yes! That's the point. What an irony. They are saying, let us be guilty of his death. And he said, no, my blood will be on you. It will cover you. 
I can only imagine that when they say this, the small grin on Jesus' face that must have appeared when he thinks, oh, how right you are, little wayward children. For this is why I've come, that my blood might be on you and on your children and on their children and on their children forevermore. There are some of you in this room right now that if you stand before God as your judge today, you would be found guilty. And there would be no one to speak on your behalf. The cry of crucify you would ring loud and would ring true. And maybe that's because you thought you were a good person and didn't realize that you're Barabbas. Maybe it's because you've rejected Christ. Maybe it's because you've been just a little religious but didn't want to come all the way and bow your knees. Whatever the reason that you have not cast your sins onto Christ, today my plea for you is that you would stop thinking you've got it all together and that you're so smart and that you're so good and cast your burdens and your sins and make his blood make you white as snow. You don't clean up first. You don't get your life together. The only thing that you bring to your salvation is the sin that needed to be forgiven. And so come be made new. And for the rest of us in this room who have looked to Christ, I say to you, look again. Behold him again. Behold him on Golgotha, the place of the skull, hanging crucified for you. And know that it is love made manifest. It is love that did not leave you to yourself. It is love that gave his life to set you free. Behold him again and know you are forgiven, loved, and wanted. And on your worst day, in the midst of your greatest failures, when you are screwing up again and again and again, Jesus does not remain silent anymore. His blood speaks a better word. His blood doesn't call for your condemnation. It calls for your acquittal for your pardon, and it calls for your forgiveness. And so look to it. You've been following him for 30, 40 years. Look to it again. Don't get past it. Don't get over it. Behold the man and keep beholding him. You see, some trials grab our attention. Some trials have shaped the course of history, but none of them matter more than this one. Because Jesus was condemned in the courtroom of man so that we could be acquitted in the courtroom of God. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we gather this morning as dirty, rotten sinners in the hands of a God who gave his son to be unjustly accused, unjustly tried, unjustly convicted, and unjustly killed. So that his blood would be on us and on our children and on their children and on their children. That his blood would cover us and make us white as snow. Father, we thank you that you would allow your son and Jesus, we thank you that you would go through such torment. That you would go through a literal hell so that we might be spared hell. That you would take our sins and become sin your very self. Take the wrath and anger of God in our place. Take judgment in our place. That we, that we might be spared. That the one would die for the many. That you would take all of our place. Bear our wrath. Bear our punishment. Bear our wounds. By your wounds we are healed. 
Father, for the one in this room that doesn't know you this morning, as we sing this song, I'm going to stand up to the left. Father, give them strength and give them conviction. They come down here and say, Brent, I need to know how to follow Jesus because I haven't. I've been close to him. I've thought about it. I've been religious. I believe in God. But I've never actually given my sins over to Christ that he might forgive them. Come this morning. He will take them. He will take all of them. The known ones and the secret ones. He'll take them all. His blood washes them all clean. And for those of us in this room who have looked on Christ and belonged to him, look on him again. Let him be made afresh in your vision and your heart that you would see you are loved by a God who made you and on your worst day he still sent his son while you were a sinner to die for you. God, we love you so much and we're thankful for the gospel, this good news that Christ has died for us. We love you in Christ and we pray all people say. Let's stand together. I'm going to stand right over here. I'd love to pray with you or anything you need.